I have a thought I want us to consider as we jump into this. Uh, do you remember possibly from high school science what a photon is? That name ring a bell for any of you? Most of us were probably introduced to photons in high school physics, but just in case, on the off chance that any of us have forgotten, you know, are you smarter than a fifth grader and all that, a photon is the elementary particle of electromagnetic radiation. Does that help? In, in, in layman terms, a photon is basically the elementary piece of light or radio waves, the elementary, most simple part of light or radio waves. It remained an enigma in physics until the early 20th century because it exhibits what was at the time an incomprehensible trait, something known as wave-particle duality. It means that it functions both as a wave and as a particle, something that was just absolutely unbelievable to scientists of the day. And though this may not seem crazy or an odd notion to us today, in 1905, it was completely unbelievable to the scientific community. So much so that the idea was endorsed by almost no one, in spite of the fact that it was proposed by one of the greatest minds that humanity has ever produced, the late Albert Einstein. Yet, despite baffling and humbling scientists of the day, today no one really marvels at the photon, do they? It's introduced in high school science classes, as I mentioned, and its principles undergird the large amount of mainstream technology today, but we basically ignore it. What was once marvelous to the greatest minds on the planet is now trite. It is now common. It is now pedestrian and forgotten by most of us. And I wonder, could that be true of what we're going to study in our time together this morning as well. Is there any chance that our familiarity with the great truths of God's character has over time had the same effect on our appreciation for just how incredible our God is? Is it possible that in all our zeal for biblical knowledge, we have become numb to the awesome attributes of God detailed in the pages of Scripture. Much like scientists today consider the photon to be elementary and to be basic, the attributes of God are now trite, common, pedestrian, or even forgotten by some of us. My endeavor in Psalm 68 in our time together this morning is to seek to reignite just a bit of our wonder at the marvelous God that we serve and worship. Read with me from Psalm 68 as we see who God is here. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows, 
is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The king of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though the men lie among sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mountain that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs deliverance from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of the dogs may have a portion of, from their foes. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, O Lord. O you who are of Israel's fountain, there is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. Father, as we've already sung about in our time together this morning, you are awesome and worthy of our praise. We ask for your guidance and direction. We need your help and your power to understand your word rightly. I pray that we would be listening to your spirit as, we, as I speak and as we listen. Lord, that we would behold wonderful things about who you are. Lord, help us to see you for just a bit more who you are in our time together this morning. Help the realities of your greatness and your goodness and your provision for us to not simply drift over our heads as things we've heard a hundred times before, but impress them upon our minds and our hearts as we study your word together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been with us over the course of the summer, 
or if you're new, let me try and catch you up to speed. We've been walking through the so-called Messianic Psalms in our time together over the summer. We've walked through Christ's life via his anticipation and prophetic promises in the book of Psalms. And so far, we've witnessed his perfect, obedient life, submitting to the Father in every way. We've witnessed his rejection, his betrayal at the hand of Judas, and his atoning death on the cross. Then last week, things took a bit of an improved tone as George had the opportunity to speak of his resurrection by the Father. This positive note continues as we turn our attention to Psalm 68 this morning. Psalm 68 pictures God in five different lights. Five incredible, incomparable roles that highlight just a bit of who he is. This is a notoriously difficult psalm to manage and to organize, so we're going to try to just walk through each of those five and draw some conclusions from it at the end. First, we see in verses 1 through 3, God the warrior. God the warrior. Once again, David draws on his Psalm 1 paradigm. God's response to both the wicked and the righteous. First, he responds to his enemies. Look at verse 1 and 2. They're described as those who hate him. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. God's enemies, those who hate him, those who defy him, those who rebel against him are seen as scattering and fleeing before God, this awesome warrior. I love the imagery here. They are driven away as smoke is driven away. You get that picture in your mind when you're putting out a campfire and that last smoke puffs up or when you're putting out a candle and you get that little whiff of smoke and it evaporates in nothing. Or they will perish Right? They will perish before God as wax melts before fire. We've all seen this, right? You light a candle and the wax almost indistinguishably causes the wax to just evaporate, to disintegrate, to disappear before the fire. This is the imagery that David holds up of God's enemies as they stand in opposition to him. It's not some sort of dualistic good versus evil where each party is pretty much the same strength and we don't know who's going to win. God's enemies are nothing in comparison to him. In short, God's victory over his enemies is absolute as if it were uncontested at all. But what about his people? What about those who are responding to him? Look at verse 3. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. God's people, the righteous here, are described as being glad, as exulting and praising God, as being joyful and jubilant. Again, this draws on Psalm 1, this idea of the wicked man versus the righteous man and these different approaches. But what is it that makes the righteous so happy, so joyful in this moment? It's because the wicked have been defeated. It's because God's enemies have fled before him and those in his entourage, those in his army, celebrate God's uncontested victory. Sometimes in our modern sensibilities, we have a tendency to think that we are more gracious, that we are more caring than God is. And so we're hesitant to celebrate God's victorious reign. Here, the righteous are glad, they exult, they are filled with joy because God is the ultimate warrior. God's people celebrate his victory over his enemies. 
God is the absolute conqueror of his enemies. And I know we understand that intellectually. We've probably heard that before, but when was the last time you meditated on the fact that the God we worship here this morning, the God we serve Monday through Saturday or through Sunday, is a God who, when facing opposition, stands unequaled? When was the last time you meditated on the fact that if anyone but for the grace of God, stands in opposition to God, God could wipe him out with a word. We should be humbled by this reality. We should be inspired by this reality. There is no one like our conquering God. From there, David seems to double down on the joy God's people experience by espousing another aspect of God's character. Look at verses 4 through 10. We see God the protector. Now it's interesting, this section, verses 4 through 10, embedded in it are four aspects of God's protection, God's care for his people. First, we see his presence. Look at verse 4. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. We're going to come back to this encouragement to sing and sing praises to him later in the message. But what is highlighted here is God's presence. Did you see that? Him who rides through the deserts. God is envisioned as riding on the clouds of the sky, as available and present in every circumstance and situation that the Israelites need him. This is what theologians refer to as God's omnipresence. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. And again, this is a reality that clicks intellectually but fails to impact our lives consistently. That there is not a circumstance or a situation There is not a place in all of the universe and creation where God isn't fully present. Think about that for a moment. God is fully present everywhere, all the time, no matter the circumstances. And because he is present, he can intercede for his people. Look at his preservation of his people in verses 5 and 6. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Because God is present everywhere, he can preserve everyone. He notes four particular particular audiences or recipients of God's help in these verses. Did you pick up on it? He's the father to orphans. He's the protector of widows. He is the host to the lonely, and he is the liberator of the prisoners. Now, I don't know how many of us can identify practically with these situations. Maybe some of us are in those situations as widows or as orphans or as the lonely or as even having experienced some sort of prisoning or imprisonment. But the, the point here, and the reason he calls out these specific audiences is God has a unique care for the weak and the needy. Pick up on that. As as he's going through this list, those that have a unique vulnerability, God expresses a unique care for them. Which forces me to make a couple of quick notes. The first is, if God has a unique care for the weak and needy, we ought to as well. We ought to as well. It's no coincidence that in the New Testament ethic, as the New Testament authors are writing, they specifically target a number of these same audiences. Orphans and widows, think of the book of James. 
prisoners and the lonely. The weak and the needy are ones that we should care for because God cares for them. We should also note here briefly that the weak and needy he has in mind here is us. The reason he speaks to those that are weak and needy is because the vulnerable was Israel. Israel was the vulnerable people that needed God's help. And the same is true in the New Testament. Remember our study last fall from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, God didn't choose the strong things of the world, he chose the weak. God didn't choose the wise things of the world, he chose the foolish. God chose us, the weak, the needy, the foolish, the helpless. But God preserves his people. This incredible truth seems to spark a historical memory in David's mind, and it reminds him of how God has displayed his power in the past in the Exodus. Look at verse 7 and 8. He writes, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. David looks back to the Exodus where God displayed his power for his people and went out before them through the wilderness. You remember the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the wilderness as God moved ahead of his people and they followed his lead and his power. God's powerful presence here causes earthquakes and thunderstorms. It's as if the very fabric of creation, the very fabric of the universe recognizes the power of its creator and bows a knee in submissive obedience. God's power is so overwhelming that the earth quakes before him that the heavens pour rain at his command. God is omnipotent, as theologians put it. That means that God is all-powerful. There is no plan of God that has ever been thwarted that can ever not be achieved. God does what he wants. And opposed to the deist view that God's passive observance or is indifferent to people... Here God is seen using that incredible power to intercede for his people. Look at his provision in verse 9 and 10. It says, Reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. And that your flock in verse 10 may be interpreted your congregation, your people in your Bible. God is seen as present, he is seen as caring, he is seen as all-powerful, and he uses that power to provide and to care for his people. Does that stagger you? It should. You should marvel at that reality. God is the faithful protector of his people. Think about that. The one who cast the stars into the universe with a word, the one who spoke all of creation into existence with a word, is the one who has promised to provide and protect you. This should stagger us. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our protector. And now David shifts his attention back to the conquest of his enemies. You'll note throughout this psalm that David seems to address his people, or the people of God, and then the enemies, and then the people of God and the enemies, and he goes back and forth. So in addition to God as a warrior and God as a protector, here we see God as the victor in verse 11 through 18. Look at this. This is a fascinating section. God is the victor. He begins 
with this declaration of God's victory. Did you see that? In verse 11, the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news or the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee. They flee. The imagery here, the illustration is of these women running into the city saying, we've won. We've won. The victory is assured. The victory is achieved. We're safe. They announce this victory. Now, verses 12 and 13 are a little bit difficult to translate, which is why your Bibles may have different translations. Mine reads, The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. A couple of different ways, especially that phrase in the middle, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. There's some ambiguity about the verbiage and what precisely he's talking about. But regardless, what is envisioned here is the announcement of the victory has been made, and now the spoils are returning to the city. In classic language, where to the victor go the spoils, right? God has been victorious, the announcement of his victory has been made, and now the spoils, the loot, is being returned to the city. And that victory is shown to be totally complete in verse 14 when he writes, when the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. That's another illustration, it's another metaphor, it's this mountain that would have been covered with snow when the stove fell, and basically what he's saying is God's victory is as complete as the snow covering the cap of the mountain. That's how overwhelming and complete God's victory was. So they declare this victory for God, and then we get what feels like a really odd section. What began with an announcement of victory leads to a jealous mountain. Did you see that in verses 15 through 17? It's an odd section. It says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. What he's doing here is this is a comparison of glories. He compares two mountaintops, this mountain of Bashan with Mount Zion, where the temple was located. He says there's an incredible mountain. It's east of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. It's this huge mountain with all of these multiple peaks, and it is majestic and amazing in its physical glory. And he pictures that mountain looking over at Zion, this comparably less prestigious mountain, and being jealous of it. Did you see that? Verse 16. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mountain God, or at the mount God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. Looks over at Zion. It looks over on the mountain that God has chosen to place Israel. And that majestic, physically impressive mountain is jealous. Now why? Because God's presence is on Zion. Because that is where God has chosen to place his presence. Verse 17 says, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. God's presence is a surpassing glory to even the physically impressive mountain of Bashan. And then he again celebrates this victory. Look at verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. The imagery is here metaphorical of almost God returning back home from his conquest. Having gone out and defeated his enemies, having been preceded by these announcements of victory, God now returns home, metaphorically, I've already said God's omnipresent, returns home 
to this celebration of victory. He's got a host of captives behind him, and he's received gifts of tribute from those he's defeated. Here in this section, God is pictured as the ultimate celebrated victor. Do you have that picture in your mind? If that's hard for you to grasp because we don't have many celebrations like this today, imagine a picture that you've seen from 1944 and the Allies' return or or taking back over of Paris. Have you ever seen those pictures? From August of 1944, when the Allied tanks and infantry roll into Paris and the citizens line up to celebrate, finally, we've been liberated from the Nazis. That's the picture here. God liberating his people and coming back into the city to fanfare and celebration. But even that idea from Paris in 1944 pales in comparison to God's victory and celebration. Because there is no one like our victorious God. If you meditated on that, what that victory celebration will be like one day, what that glorious reality of God's uncontested victory will look like, we should marvel at that reality. And then in the next section, David again turns his attention back to God's people, and we see God, the Savior. Look at verse 19 through 27. This is a, or it begins by talking about God's deliverance here in verse 19 and 20. Look at this. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverance from death. Don't just skip over those verses. Those are absolutely amazing verses. God here stresses his ownership and his action to rescue his people. There is only one Savior in this world, and it is God. He owns the title Savior. He owns salvation. He owns rescue of his people, and he acts on their behalf to rescue them. These words seem to be mirrored both in Jonah 2.9 as Jonah is in the belly of the whale, and in Revelation 7 verse 10 where the saints cry out to God and both say basically the same thing as David here, Salvation belongs to our God. God delivers his people. He saves his people. And again, this next section, verses 21 through 23, likens God to a conquering king. Let me read that briefly. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. That's just the idea of a rebellious king. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. And I think the them here is his enemies. He's taking captives here in verse 22. He explains it in verse 23, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that their tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. This section pictures God as this conquering king where judgment is executed, captives are taken, and victory is shared with his people. God judges his enemies. God is seen judging his enemies here. And then we see this incredible picture of the procession in verses 24 through 27. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, try to picture this in your mind, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, O Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin. The least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. 
Did you get this picture in your mind reading through that? This victorious army is returning to the city. And there's marching and there's music and there's celebration. And all participate in the celebration. He points out Benjamin and Judah are there. Those are the southernmost tribes of Israel. And Nephtali and Zebulun, those are the northernmost tribes of Israel. All of them are present, sharing in and celebrating God's victory. It speaks to this idea that God is the final restoring Savior of his people. That picture plays throughout the entire Bible of God as this Savior, as the one who will rescue and redeem and restore his people. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our Savior. Don't let that reality just drift over you, that God owns salvation, that he daily bears us up. That to God, the Lord, belong deliverance from death. Those truths can be some so trite to us. They can become so common. They can become so pedestrian that the gravitas of what we're saying is lost on us. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our Savior. And from there, not surprisingly, God, or David, calls on God to act. David calls on God to act, and finally we see God, the actor, in verses 28 through 31. Now, what I mean by actor here is not, don't think Hollywood, I'm not, I'm not trying to like rely on that imagery of someone's false role. What I mean is like the key player, the one who is acting, the one who is doing whatever takes place. Look at verse 28 through 31. He highlights both God's power and his authority. Let me read this section. Summon your power, O God. The power, O God, by which you have worked in or for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. He calls upon God to summon his power, not to build up powers if God was limited in that capacity, but he says, bring your power to bear and display your power to your enemies. Now, verse 30 seems a little bit strange to us. Rebuke the beasts? Like, what do the, the bulls do to God, right? It's a metaphor, okay? The beasts and the wild beasts here are the rebellious nations and the rebellious kings that stand in opposition to God. What he's stressing here is that God is active. He is not passive. God is not sitting back idly by watching things take place as if he doesn't have any control over it. And David calls on God to act. He calls on God to do something. And not surprisingly, all those nations are envisioned as ultimately submitting to God's authority. Verse 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you, tribute. And then verse 31, nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush, the strength and the powerful nations of the day, shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. These rival authorities and kings are seen as giving tribute to God and as submitting to his authority and his rulership. God supersedes all the human authority. God supersedes all governments and all powers and every human authority that lays itself in opposition to him. God is not silent. And again, we need to remember that, not just intellectually, but practically. 
In our modern scientific age, there is a tendency, even among Christians, to view God as primarily passive, is there not? As primarily sitting back, just waiting to see what's going to take place in this world. There's even proponents of what's known as open theism that basically believes God doesn't know what's going to take place in the future. He's kind of just rolling the dice and hoping for the best. It's not the God we see here in Psalm 68. We need to see, we need to be reminded in our daily lives that God isn't silently wringing his hands, hoping for the best. He is actively directing the affairs of this world. He is actively directing the events of your life. God is in control. He is not passive. He is not silent. He is the chief actor. God isn't concerned about the powers of the earth. He's not concerned about the rebel nations and the rival powers and everything that's going on that seems out of control in our world. He will one day unequivocally demand submission from every single one of them. And no one will stand in opposition when he does that. There is no one like our acting God. There is no one that has the sovereignty and authority to exert his will on creation like our God. But after beholding these incredible realities about God, ironically, the easiest thing in the world to do is to simply leave them as academic truth in our heads. Mere theological realities that impacted us once when we were first faced with them but now don't ever break through the mirage of our carefully constructed habits and patterns of life. Sure, I was marveled by God's power and God's authority and God's saving provision in my life once, but that, that's 100 years old. That doesn't really have an impact on me today. So David doesn't leave the psalm there. In verses 32 through 35, he calls the people and he calls us to action. Look at this, verses 32 through 35. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. David ends the psalm with one simple, universal command. It's woven its way through the entirety of the psalm. Worship him. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. We ran into it, remember? Back earlier in the psalm, in verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts, his name is the Lord, exult before him. David picks up on all these themes and images he expressed throughout the psalm, and he sees all of these attributes of God as motivations for worship of him. He calls on us not to simply stand idly by, saying, yep, I believe that God is omnipotent, Yep, I believe that God is omnipresent. Yeah, I believe that he's a savior. Yeah, I believe that he's a redeemer. And those are all wonderful things that don't really affect me when I go to work tomorrow. Instead, he calls on us to worship God. To worship God for his 
conquest and victory over his enemies. To worship God for his protection and provision and salvation of his people. To worship God for his power and his majesty and his action in history. In short, David calls us to worship God because he is totally unlike anyone ever. In fact, as I was trying to put together the outline for this message, I went, okay, I got, I got God as a warrior, and I got God as an actor, and I got God as a provider and a protector, and I've got God as, you know, all these things. And all of a sudden, I came to this last session, I said, I should be able to have a word for God as the one who deserves to receive the worship of the whole world. But we don't have a word for it, because no one else deserves it. The word is God. It's God as God. He's the only one like that. He's the only one that deserves what we see in verses 32 through 35. He is the only one that rides on the heavens. He is the only one that sends out his mighty voice. He is the only one who has majesty and power in the skies. He is the only one that can be described as awesome in his sanctuary. He's God. He is totally unique, totally different, totally worthy. So David calls on us and calls on the Israelites to worship him. Though Psalm 68 doesn't fit neatly into any specific category, not lament or imprecatory or hallel, it serves as an incredible reminder of how unique, how different, and how awesome our God is. And because of this, it calls us to undivided worship of him. A worship that should drive not only Sunday mornings here at church, but day in and day out the walk of your life. But what, you may ask, does psalm like this have to do with Christ? What does a psalm like this have to do with the Messiah? If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you probably picked up on some familiar language in verse 18 of Psalm 68. We read, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Here in Psalm 68, the language serves as imagery of God's victorious return to his house. Having defeated his enemies completely, he returns to his dwelling, captives and tribute in tow. But how does Paul use this language in Ephesians 4? Flip to the right in your Bibles to Ephesians in the New Testament. After the Gospels, you get 1 and 2 Corinthians, then Galatians and Ephesians. And it's fascinating. I want us to look at how Paul interprets Psalm 68 briefly. Here in Psalm 68, in verse 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 68 in Ephesians 4, verse 8. He's trying to emphasize the implications of the gospel for the believers he's writing to in Ephesus. And so he reaches back to this language of Psalm 68, and he applies it to Christ's incarnation and ascension. We read this, verse 7, Ephesians 4, verse 7, or chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and this is Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Essentially what Paul is arguing here from Psalm 68 is God's great victory over his enemies occurred in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. 
doesn't mean there isn't future victory. It doesn't mean that God's conquest at his consummation isn't going to be a great victory too. But in some incredible way, the great victory anticipated in Psalm 68 is found in Christ's work here on the earth, defeating sin and death once and for all. Then he returns home with an entourage. But it isn't those who are captives. It is those who he has saved rather than simple captives. And then he changes the language in the second part real slightly. And rather than receiving gifts from his defeated enemies, Christ offers gifts to his people. He shares his victory with his people, and he gave gifts to men. He offers the grace of salvation. He offers unity and sanctification. He offers the presence of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit to the church, to his bride. In Ephesians 4, Paul reaches back to Psalm 68, speaking of Christ fulfilling these verses, and says, this should be motivation for you as a church. This should motivate you toward unity in the church. As you align yourself behind one banner, the victorious king, this should motivate obedience to Christ as you recognize that you've been saved and cared for and redeemed by Christ. This should cause you to pursue maturity as you recognize that you've been given the gifts of the Spirit to edify and to encourage and to build you up. In Psalm 68, we come face to face with our incomparable God. A God who is a conqueror. A God who is a protector, an actor, a savior, and ultimately the chief victor. One who deserves our absolute worship. But we also see those truths come to a fine point in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Christ's victory and his ascension result in our salvation and our receipt of the Spirit of God. In short, in Psalm 68, we see Christ as the ascended conqueror and head of the church. All the language of Psalm 68 causing us to worship and adore God is true of Christ. Think about that. That is Jesus. The God described in Psalm 68 is the Christ who came to earth to die for our sins. The one who obliterates his enemies with a word. The one who has never been defeated in battle. The one who is all-powerful and all-present and promised to provide for his people. He came to earth and died for our sins and he ascended and gave gifts to us. How can that not humble us? How can that not cause us to lift our eyes in worship saying, no one is like you, God? In fact, I was reading through this passage again and again. The text that kept coming to my mind from the Old Testament was Isaiah chapter 45. Just listen to Isaiah's words here because I think they're so typical of what we're reading in Psalm 68. Isaiah 45 verses 5 and 6 says this, God speaking through Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. What a God we worship. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, I pray again, as I did when we started this message, that these incredible truths and realities would not simply be academic knowledge. They would not just be truths that float over our heads as we mindlessly consider them and then they're back out the other ear. Father, I ask that they would impress upon our hearts and our minds. Lord, that you would help us to see you, to see you as the undefeatable warrior, to see you as the protector and provider of your people, to see you as victorious and as powerful and as awesome. Father, our view of you is much too small. We view you like you're passive and sitting back, unconcerned with the things of this world. And Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would help us to see you for who you are. Lord, that we would be worshiping people, that we would be a thankful people, that we would celebrate the work Christ has done for us, and we would worship you for who you simply are and the fact that you deserve our undivided worship. In Jesus' name.